On this episode of This Week in Space, it's time to talk about what we're grateful for in space exploration, including listener favorites. Join us and be thankful. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is This Week in Space, episode number 88, recorded on November 17th, 2023. Thanksgiving listener special, what we and you are grateful for in space. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa, the global leader in contact data quality. Bad data is bad business, so make sure your customer contact data is up to date. You can get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. And by Bitwarden, the open source password manager to help you stay safe online. Get started with a free Teams or Enterprise plan trial, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to this week's in space pre-Thanksgiving special. We're grateful as hell for everything that's happened overhead since the dawn of the space age. We're betting you are too, because you're here. <laughs> and we're especially grateful to our audience, you, for sticking with us for 88 episodes as of today. And for some of you, for contributing your favorite space stuff, I'm a certified old fart, so my big moments are a few years, you know, a few decades back. But I'm jazzed about Starship and the Artemis program, so I am paying attention. Tarek? Yes, yes, and I'm I'm excited Tarek, about all that stuff, so. Your, your adjective this week is, you're my idiopathic pal, but you're a young <laughs> sprout and probably too busy playing Starfield to comment right away. But anyway, no, I have my, I have my right, correct. I have my Thanksgiving decorations that I'm putting up, you know, with all my cornucopias and my pumpkins. That's what I'm working on this week. And so. for those of you listening to the audio stream, those are clearly from the 99 cent store, but that's okay. <laughs> I love Tarek. So no comment. Guy. No comment. Okay. Hey, we got three <laughs> space jokes this week. Really? Three? Oh, swallow your gum. Yeah, here they come. I'm extra thankful for that. Too. For, Let's see, there you go. Oh, theming. I like that. Here we go. Uh, This is from Hardcore Space Ranger Brandon Evans. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon. Why did the chicken cross the Carmen line? I don't know, Brandon. Why did the chicken cross the Carmen line? Because it needed some space. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yay. (laughs) Better late than never. Okay. (laughs) And in our bonus round from Fred Becker, a friend of mine from the National Space Society, why did the black hole cross the road? Wow, another one. Uh, I don't know. Um, to, to get, get to the get, event horizon? I don't know. <laughs> to get to the other universe. You're close. <laughs> oh, <Ba-dum>, boom. <laughs> and in proper Ooh. theming, in the spirit of the proceedings, what sound does a Thanksgiving turkey astronaut make? Um, I don't know. Gobble. Gulp? I don't know. <laughs> hubble, hubble, hubble. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. What's your, what's your best turkey impersonation? Oh, crickets. That's it right there. For the Hubble Space Telescope. And of course, as always, we invite everyone to join our Space Rangers squad and send us your best or worst space joke because God knows we need them. Don't forget, do us a solid. Make sure to like, subscribe, and do all the other podcast things to tell the world that we're better than really we really are. Now, let's go to headlines. Wait, 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 wait. uh, What? What? Because it's Thanksgiving. You need to do a a, a turkey impersonation first. I thought you were going to do one. How's Mike that? goes, uh, yeah, that's good. My, my, how, how's my go? <laughs> Wait, I got a better one. I got a, I got a better one. Gobble, gobble, flack. That's, that's when they get their head chopped off. All right. All, All right. right. Now we can have a show. Family friendly. Yes. So where's this, where's how can go? we talk about anything without talking about Starship launch coming up? Fingers that's, crossed on Saturday. That's you right. We'll be there metaphorically. No, I'm not going to be there. My, well, metaphorically, my, my good friend, my good friend Josh Dinner is out there right now, basking in the the Texas sunshine. Uh, but yes, Starship, uh, SpaceX's Starship, the world's largest, most powerful rocket, uh, is ready once again. And so, Space.com is there. We got a story. Actually, we've got like a million stories about what time it's going to launch. You know, how is it going to go step by step? But this is like the redux, right? Because back in April of this year, SpaceX launched uh, 
Starship on its first flight, and it failed spectacularly with an explosion. I was there, as you'll recall, and it was. Oh, now wait, amazing. hold on. Now that was not a failure. That oh, was a partial test. It was. It was. It was. It was supposed to go all the way to Hawaii, and it ended up like twenty miles offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. I think we can say it failed because it failed to separate. Oh. The, the stages failed to separate, and um, they're excited it didn't blow up the pad. But then again, it did kind of mess up the pad but the first stage did get aloft and, and made it to staging and that was a big achievement since that was the only thoroughly untested component so well it made it to staging it did not stage right, so right. but yeah okay i i concede the point anyway it was spectacular to see regardless it was loud it was amazing and what spacex has done over and you the giggled last, through the whole thing by i the did i did <laughs> you I giggled like a giggled wild and man. and it was amazing and i'd probably do it again if they can get off the ground. Anyway, the TLDR is the launch date is for Saturday as we're recording this now, which is tomorrow, November 18th at around 8 a.m. Eastern. That's at 7 a.m. Uh, Central Time. SpaceX is going to do a webcast on the Twitter, uh, the X uh, app. Um uh, about a half an hour before that, if everything goes well. And they've made a lot of changes over the last like six months or so or so. They have rebuilt their launch pad because they utterly destroyed it uh, with that first flight. They have put in a metal uh, water-cooled plate, which is basically like a big buffer to protect, again, the bottom of the pad. They've got a water deluge system, which they just chose not to do, apparently, uh, for the last one, so that it'll, it'll better protect the pad and better uh, protect the rocket from debris and stuff by, by kind of tamping all of that stuff down. Um, and they've they've built this new staging system called a hot fire staging where instead of separating uh, in the air and then the upper stage, uh, the Starship vehicle igniting its engines, uh, they are actually going to light the engines on the Starship stage while still attached, which is something that we've seen before in past rockets. I'm sure, Rod, you can you can, you can can comment. Uh, and they're going to test how that works. Uh, and hopefully they think it'll be a much smoother uh, system. They've also improved the termination system, which had some delays in the last test. They've had to go through a slew of FAA changes and updates and, and fixes, as well as the fish and wildlife, because now they have this water deluge system, which pumps a lot. I think I saw in their launch license, 368,000 gallons of water just in that system. And then there's a 30,000 uh, gallon uh, detonation like flame system, like if there's a fire on the pad that, that they also have uh, altogether. So all that stuff has to go right. And they were supposed to launch today. And I had hoped you and I would be talking about this yeah. great success. Uh, but late yesterday, they announced they delayed it uh, at least 24 hours. They had to replace a grid fin actuator on the first stage, super heavy booster. Mm. And, uh, and those are important because that's supposed to guide the booster back. So we'll have to wait and see if they get off the ground tomorrow. They could potentially try for Sunday if they don't fuel the rocket uh, all the way. Uh, if they do, it usually takes about two or three days for them to get more liquid methane, liquid oxygen to fill the 365 foot tall or 95 foot tall rocket. It's, it's, it's ginormous. So, so, uh, Producer Ant, who keeps, keeps claiming, A, he's not a producer, and B, that he doesn't care about space, asks, how long ago was the explosion and how long did it take to rebuild the pad? I ask because I don't know, and I'm somewhat interested, somewhat. Almost, <laughs> Qualifiers. It's almost, it's almost been half a year. So April 20th yeah. was when they launched the first one, and uh, and it took them most of the summer to rebuild the pad, basically to to build the water deluge system, to build this metal plate uh, at the bottom of it to, to get all of that infrastructure in place. Then it took uh, several more months for them to get all of the approvals from the Fish and Wildlife, which they just apparently chose not yeah. to get in the beginning. Um, and then uh, to, to address all of the uh, fixes that the FAA said that they needed. Now, th that was a it's still a pretty fast turnaround from blowing up your first uh, test yeah. and destroying your pad. Um, but, you know, for SpaceX fans, it, it's like an eternity because Elon came back like the next day. Elon Musk, the, the head of, of SpaceX, uh, to say, hey, maybe they could turn around and get everything done in a month, which was obviously, you know, uh, uh, not in the cards. But they were able to get it done. So we'll see what happens, uh, and you know, with, with this one and if the pad can survive again. Or, or if they have to make more fixes going on, but it is, it is a test flight. At the end of it, I don't mean to sound harsh, right? But it seems like that first flight they could have avoided a lot of damage to the pad, a lot of other things if they had done a little more studying uh, and a little more preventative uh, precautions uh, to address a lot of the stuff that they saw that happened. So, 
Hey, iterate and create, my friend. Let's just hope exactly. that nothing comes down and kills a tuna so they won't get hung up with fish and wildlife again. <laughs> oh, yes, no. I'm being a little cynical. I know. That All right. stuff washes up on the that, shore. That's the thing. I've got pieces of it. Oh, don't tell anybody. Ooh. Shh. <laughs> All right. So that was from space.com. Also from space.com. Lunar Crater Maker from a couple of years ago was, in fact, after all, a Chinese rocket stage, we think. This was uh, March of 22, when a upper stage of a rocket smacked into the moon and created us a new 100-foot-wide crater. And first we thought it was a SpaceX stage, and then they said, no, not ours. And uh, current evaluation would seem to point to it being a Long March 3C upper stage launched in 2014, to which the Chinese instantly and predictably said, wasn't us. We only (laughs) drop our upper stages on small villages. So, yeah. No, yeah, you know, it, it, this this study's been going on for the last, you know, year uh year plus. Uh and the the scientists over at the University of Arizona, they they believe uh and this is this is through a, a doctoral student study uh, at the um the Department of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering there. Uh they believe that their their telescope observations of of and their tracking of China's Chang'e 5T1 mission, which you might recall was kind of a precursor mission that they did uh, to get ready for uh, a moon landing and sample return uh, way back when. That was launched in, I think, 2014, if memory serves, that it was this stage from the rocket used for that mission that was just out there in deep space and did all sorts of fun uh, 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 trajectories around the, the near space environment and then just crashed into the moon. And this object, which they called WE0913A, is in fact the part of the Long March 3C rocket body that launched that that Chang'e mission. So uh, a lot of detective work in terms of like trajectory tracking and uh, and telescope uh, observ- observations of things over time to try to make that right. But it does take a lot of work, and at least we know what it was now. And the nice thing is that they know the relative size of that rocket body, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole rocket used, right. and they know what the, the size of the crater that it created. And that can add to a lot of science, not just about impacts on the moon, but also about uh, impacts of other objects, maybe even on the earth and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes, uh, how that gets analyzed going forward. But at least this mystery solved, which is good to say. Very good. And for our last story, which is some space news, which took me a while to figure out your headline, but dense (laughs) that I am, I did get it. Watch out Spock. The Vulcan rocket is coming. That's right. I thought that that would be pretty straightforward. Right. Because well, it's me. Spock we're is, talking about here. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- this week, this week, uh, the United Launch Alliance's uh, CEO Tori Bruno uh, had a, a media roundtable with reporters, and um, unfortunately, I, I missed it. But Space News was on the case, uh, as was uh, uh, I think several other reporters, like uh, uh, Aviation Week and, and whatnot. Uh, and basically, they said that they're tracking actually a little bit ahead of schedule for that Christmas Eve debut launch of the brand new Vulcan rocket. And the Vulcan rocket is a, actually it's called Vulcan Centaur because it has a Centaur upper stage, uh, is designed to be the United Launch Alliance's new workhorse rocket. They have a lot of flights already booked on this one. And, um, and, uh, uh, and you know, it's been delayed for a good long time, as you and I have both discussed oh uh, gosh, several times yeah. in the past, Rod, because of the delays with its BE-4 Blue Origin rocket engines and a few other things. This first Valves. Valves. <laughs> That's right. This first launch is a really interesting one, too, because it's going to launch um, the the Peregrine Lunar Lander. It's a commercial mm. uh, lunar lander by um, Astrobotic One. The flight itself is called Certification One or CERT One. And um, and I think there's some ashes, human ashes flying on it, if memory serves. But I'd have to go back and check on that one. Um, That's but- from Celestis? I would assume so. Yes, I'm yeah. fairly certain. Um, but I have to just go back and, and check. Um, and so, uh, Tori Bruno, you know, th- yeah, that's right. It is Celestis. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Um, and, uh, but Tori Bruno did say that they're pacing a couple of head of days, uh, fingers crossed. That's a quote, by the way, by Jeff Fouch, <laughs> uh, over at Space News, uh, that they're, they're a couple of, uh, ahead of days, uh, ahead of days of, of their planning for a Christmas Eve launch. They have backup days on the 25th, which would be, uh, kind of a bummer for people that want to have that day off the Christmas day uh, and also the 26th if they need those three windows. But um, uh, if they, um, if they get off the ground anytime in that period, that moon lander 
would land on January 25th. So they'd be about a month trip uh, to the moon, which would be kind of neat to see too. So hopefully everything, all the pacing goes well because they have to get through a hot fire test on the pad. Uh, they have to make sure that the assembly and the stacking go smoothly. Um, the, the lander is already there. And so they, their integration is all underway. And it, it's always really exciting to see a new rocket lift off. And, you know, if they get off on the first try, that would be amazing. Um, if they just get off and they make it their window to get to the moon, that would be also uh, amazing because this would be, uh, I believe, like the first private U.S. moon lander to reach uh, the lunar surface, even though there have been a few others from other countries that have been uh, trying to do so. And uh, and they're not the last, but they would be the vanguard for this new uh, program and this new initiative, too. Uh, you've given me chills with that. Thank you. <laughs> and I say to those guys on the ground crew, hey, this is space. It's more important than Christmas. You can do that next year. <laughs> I say well, that we because saw it with James Webb Space to. Telescope, right? See? Right. On Christmas. So. Right. Jingle, jingle. So uh, very good. Uh, thank you for that. And we will be back in just a moment after this message from our friends at Melissa. Stand by. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa, the data quality experts. For over 38 years, Melissa has helped companies harness the value of their customer data to drive insight, maintain data quality, and support global intelligence. All data expires up to 25% per year. Having clean and verified data helps customers to have a smooth, error-free purchase experience. Flexible enough to fit any business model, Melissa verifies addresses from more than 240 countries to ensure only valid billing and shipping addresses enter your system. Melissa's international address validation cleans and corrects street addresses worldwide, automatically transliterating from one system to another, for example, Chinese to Cyrillic. Focus your spending where it matters the most. Melissa offers free trials, sample codes, and flexible pricing, an ROI guarantee, and unlimited technical support to customers all around the world. Once you're signed up with Melissa, it's easy to integrate their other services. Melissa Identity Verification. Increase compliance, reduce fraud, and improve onboarding. Melissa Enrich. Gain insight into who and where your customers are. Melissa's education portal is available to individuals with a valid .edu email address. This popular feature is designed to introduce future data scientists to the inherent value of data and its global relevance in an ever-increasing range of industries and applications. Download the free Melissa Lookups app on Google Play or in the Apple App Store. No sign-up is required. Validate an address and personal identity in the USA or Canada. Check global phone numbers to find caller, carrier, and geographical information, and check global IP address information and more. Melissa has achieved the highest level of security status available by gaining FedRAMP authorization. While these technologies are exclusively for governmental agencies, all Melissa users benefit from the superior level of security. Melissa's solutions and services are GDPR and CCPA compliant and meet SOC 2 and HIPAA high trust standards for information security management. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. All right. I am back, complete with the gardeners downstairs. And uh, <laughs> uh, this week, we have opted to talk about, our, in, in the theme of Thanksgiving, what we're grateful for in space exploration and discovery over the last 60-odd years. And uh, I just wanted to start by saying I'm grateful for the imagery and ideas that spun out of Werner von Braun and his team and Disney and their team and Collier's Magazine back in the 1950s. I was just barely alive then, just in the last couple of years. But uh, because that stuff endured in the press and in our horrible elementary school library where nothing was newer than 10 years old, I was able to flip through those magazines with those incredible Chesley Bonestell illustrations of how, let me, let me say if I could say it the way they did, man will conquer space. <laughs> and, you know, they were, they were cool. They were visionary. It was nothing like what we did. We took a much more streamlined, get it done right now and worry about the long-term later approach. But uh, Von Braun's ideas encompassed a shuttle type of craft, uh, not like the one we saw, but an actual rocket with wings that would uh, self-propelled that would go up to orbit, deploy cargoes and come back. And it was propelled by nitric acid and some oxidizer. I forget what it was. Um, and any, any given 
given mission, whether it was to the moon or to Mars, would have taken hundreds and hundreds of flights because it had pretty low capacity. But, you know, this was pioneering stuff at the time. So we were going to have that shuttle. We were going to have a space station. We were going to have a lunar ferry. Uh, eventually, we were going to have a moon base. And then finally, of course, and if you're watching the video stream, here it is. Nice shot of a Von Braunian later edition space station. And he would have built a fleet of 10 craft, I think uh, eight passenger, two cargo, that would have taken 80 Lantern John military men out to Mars <laughs> and crashed instantly because the air was a lot thinner than we thought. But, you know. These were early yeah. days. I think so I that the, was, uh, yeah. I was going to say, I, ha- I have like the steel book special edition of, of that whole Von Braun Disney special. Mm. Um, <laughs> just, just for nostalgia's sake. So I totally get it. I totally get I, that, that whole well, time for you. And I think I've told this story before, but I was working for Disney making short films in the eighties, early nineties. And I asked, I, I was working with the, the head of the educational division, and I asked her one day, probably louder than I should have, because it's me after all, I said, hey, whatever happened to Mars and beyond? And she said, shushed me and took me into a side office and said, we don't talk about that here. I said, why? It was a masterpiece of animation filmmaking. She goes, because it was so wrong. We pulled it from circulation. And then about eight years later, <laughs> no. they brought it out in that tin box edition you're talking about. And it's great fun to watch and very yeah. visionary for its day. But yeah, they were ashamed of it and then turned around and <laughs> released it to the public anyway. So that's my first beat. From there, I jump through the, the beginnings of the space age. I'm just barely old enough to remember Gemini, a couple of Gemini flights, thinking, wow, what's wrong with their radio? It's all crackly and messed up. But uh, what really made the big first impression was Apollo 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, we had had an orbital flight of Apollo 7 which was in 1967, and it did what it needed to do, which was prove out the command module. But then Apollo 8 was rushed into service because we didn't have a ready lunar module yet, and at least according to legend, we were concerned the Russians were going to beat us to a circumlunar flight. They were just going to loop it. So in December of 68, we sent Apollo 8 to the moon, three astronauts, just a command module, no lunar module. So if that... uh, if that engine on the service module had not lit up, they would still be in lunar orbit somewhere. But uh, spectacular mission. They were orbiting Christmas. Uh, they were orbiting the moon on Christmas Eve, 10 orbits, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, set down an amazing message uh, reading from the book of Genesis, which was an interesting confluence of science and religion. But it just galvanized everybody. And really, as has been said by many, it saved 1968 because it was a lousy year in the U.S. And that was just such a feat of engineering and daring and it really just shows what you can do when you've got a lot of people working with common cause and of course a very large unlimited budget so that was that was a a real riveting moment for me and for an awful lot of people that were alive then and i'm just grateful as heck that i was alive to to see it no that's amazing how about you i'm sorry i missed it but we got artemis now so i actually didn't put artemis on our big list that we were going to talk about but uh um, but it's I, down at the bottom. Actually, <laughs> it is. So no worries. You know, I, I kind of took, I'm, I'm surprised we didn't do this last year ahead of Thanksgiving, you know, because, you know, there's always a lot to be, to celebrate, you know, each year, but I guess we could do it at the end of the year too. Um, but my, I, I kind of took a different tack. I was thinking about things that I was yeah. thankful for. Nerd alert. Uh, that 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 <laughs> that are, that resonated really personally. And I was really struck by a conversation I had with my mom like about, I don't know, maybe about 15 years ago. But when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you may, you may have recall in the eighties, there was a, a, a sci-fi movie called space camp, which was exciting. And, uh, <laughs> awful with, with, who was it? It was, uh, it was Tate Donovan and the mom from back to the future, Leah Thompson going into space, but it was based on the real life space camps. There was one in Florida at that time. And there was one in, in Huntsville, Alabama. And of course right. the one in Huntsville, Alabama was the one that I ended up going to was in high base. school. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I, I went, I went to space camp, I think three of the four years that I was in high school. And wait, the reason, you went three times. Oh yeah. Yeah. And like this, the third time oh. then was for two weeks. So I kind of can consider that four times because you you're, it's like four wow. separate sessions. Yeah. And, and the reason that I kind of discussed it, because, you know, without the space age, without space exploration, there would be no, like, space camp for kids to get really inducted and introduced into all that. Not only did I make a lot of friends that I still have to this day 
you know, from that experience when I was like 15. Um, but my mother did take us to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, my, my, my parents took us to the Kennedy Space Center for that, uh, for that first trip, which I think we've talked about in the past before, uh, where I saw all the historic launch pads and I saw the Saturn V in person for the first time ever. And, uh, and I met my first astronaut. It was Mike Mullane. He had written a sci-fi book, uh, Rod. Yeah. And, and, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't sell it because I guess it had like adult themes and adult situations Ooh. in it. And he wouldn't sell it. <laughs> he wouldn't sell it to anyone who was younger than 15 years old. And so you had to be in wait, high school. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Why 15 instead of 18? Isn't well, some- I, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was a sci-fi book, but my friend, my, my, my close friend, uh, Sarah, who is an aerospace engineer, like right now, uh, over at Penn State, um, she wanted to buy it and she was 13. So I had to buy it for her. <laughs> so, and he gave me the side eye when I said, can you please autograph it to Sarah? And he's like, but that's not your name. And I'm like, no, it's for someone that I'm going to give it to. Are they over 15? <laughs> you know? Sure, like, mister. Sure, sure Mike. <laughs> so. <laughs> Aunt likes that. <laughs> that's his favorite laugh. So, uh, but, but mm. so I, I just, I, I, I had the fortune of going back out there as an adult um, when they rebooted Cosmos and was really, I don't know. I don't want to say surprised. I was like heartened to see like yet like another set of generations going through and a very different type of space camp back then when I went as an adult, it was the whole asteroid capture plan. That was NASA's asteroid rendezvous mission or you know, and you know how I think about that. It was like the lamest idea ever, uh, eventually, is what we got uh, for how to get an asteroid uh, back to Earth. Um, but but they, you had like a SpaceX kind of-ish modules there. You had Orion-ish modules there. Very different from when I was there. It was just Space Station and um, and the, the shuttle. And, uh, and it was just nice to know that that interest and that passion in those kids is, you know, it has an outlet. Uh, in this day and age, I think now there's a lot more distractions, but there's still a lot of kids that want to go there and be inspired. I think we need to recreate and, and remake Space Space Camp the movie. As no, well. so no, I think I think no. it'd be great. I think it'd be great to that see. That movie like, needs to be burned and buried <laughs> twenty feet deep. Get, get oh my god! We accidentally <laughs> we accidentally lit up the solids, and we got to oh. let the kids go, even though they're just visiting the Jinx shuttle. I mean, really, sent Max to space, and Jinx will help get Max. Okay, okay. So. Look, we got like twenty more stories. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. But the inspiration is the key. There is the yes. inspiration is the key. And I went to space camp as an adult as well in '84, and I think the highlight for me was realizing that the air bearing chairs that we were using to slide around in the simu- next to the simulated shuttle payload bay actually dated back to the Gemini program. <laughs> they put you on those things in a harness and it's got, it's basically like a, like a, what do they call those air tables where you play air hockey. And uh, if you so much as sneezed, you went sliding across the floor in another direction, but I digress. All right. I'm what's going to your next one. Well, I was going to say Apollo 11, but you know, everybody knows that it's painfully obvious, incredible yeah. moment, transformational, blah, blah, blah. So uh, you can watch that on YouTube. However, the less appreciated one, which I'll keep short because I've talked about it before, was the landing of Viking 1. Mm-hmm. So in 1976, Viking 1 and 2 arrived at Mars, orbiter and lander combos. Great, big, heavy machines, expensive for the day, about a billion dollars for the program. An appreciable amount of which, of which was spent on sterilizing them, I might add. Still the golden standard for planetary protection. And... um being able to sneak into Caltech's secondary auditorium where they were projecting it was incredible. And, you know, here's this kid and his teen standing there looking very nervous next to all these hardened media guys who were badged. I was not, but I just stood in the back and tried to be as small as possible, which was easier then for me than it is now, and watched the people at JPL and their mission control countdown as they anticipated the landing. Uh, it was, of course, delayed by about 15 minutes because the distance from Earth to Mars and the subsequent delay in radio transmissions. But we finally got the confirmation and then waited very quietly in this large room, again, full of hardened journalists that were, let's just say they were hard to impress, <laughs> waited for that first image to come back and waited and waited. And then line by line up on the big projection screens in front of us, was painted this image for the first image from the surface of another world by a robot. And it was a shot of the foot pad because the engineers <laughs> wanted to see it. They landed a solid ground 
and the groan was was palpable. You know, these journalists <laughs> are going, "What? What is that?" And I sheepishly said, "Well, that's the footpad." The engineers wanted. They looked at me like, "Who the hell are you?" And um, finally, we did get a landscape picture. It was black and white. So again, groans from the. And then it was uncorrected, and they had a green sky. And the story goes on. But basically, despite what the hardened journalist thought. It was an incredible moment to be able to be witness to that first robot landing on another world successfully. Uh, the Russians had actually set two down in 1973. One crashed, didn't work at all. The second one sent out a few lines of uh, visual code, but it ended up choking and did not manifest into an image. So this was the first time. And it was just amazing. And Viking 1, the lander, was the longest lived of all four of the spacecraft two landers and two uh, orbiters. And I think shut down in, was it 81, 83? Wow. Somewhere in there. Wow. But only because of programming error from JPL. It was still running fine. These things had plutonium fuel supplies, but uh, heaters. But um, they set up a message that accidentally steered the radio dish off axis and contact with Earth was broken. There have been missions suggested when i say missions i mean earthbound things to try and beam tremendously powerful messages to it to see if it's still up there listening because <laughs> given the half-life of plutonium it could be but it's been decided that that's not worth the money spent so there we go that's kind of like what On happened to, to voyager that's kind of what they, they, they well except voyager <laughs> had a successful ending this one yeah. didn't yeah well i have a mars landing one later on uh in the in the in the in, in our talk if we get there but you know i wanted to go to the space shuttle program because you know as apollo was to you i think the shuttle was to me mm -hmm. um and it was the vehicle that i you know i would buy toys of and get uh build models of uh, but there was one mission that i'm really thankful for for like a personal reason and i've mentioned this i think in the past before as a scary day but it was uh it was probably one of the more I don't want to say boring because no, no, no space missions are boring, but it's uh, it was the STS-126 space shuttle mission, which was in November of 2008. In fact, it launched on November 14th of 2008, um, and um, which I think is the Apollo 12 launch anniversary as well, if memory serves. Uh, but uh, about you know about how many days later on the 28th, so like 12 days later, 14 days later, as they were getting ready to leave the space station, they undocked. And that was when my, my, my wife went into labor with my daughter because she was, she was pregnant. And it was that, that is one of the missions that, that to this day, like is like seared in my memory because of, of me covering the mission remotely, of course, because we, we knew that, 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 that my, my daughter Zadie was going to be close to delivery. But, um, uh, but she came like a week early. <laughs> and so it was a lot of scrambling, uh, to try to get to the hospital and everything. And my daughter was born on November 29th, which is one day before landing, uh, of mm -hmm. the space shuttle Endeavor. They delivered a logistics module to the space station and, uh, and Don Pettit, the astronaut. And this was the mission that he invented his, uh, coffee cup, his zero G coffee cup. And he recorded like a video of it where he basically built a, a, a cup like an airplane wing that would use surface tension to wick the coffee into because he was tired of drinking yeah. coffee out of a straw on the space station. And so he built a cup that he could drink it out oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. If you're watching the video, that's his, that's his special coffee cup. And, um, I tell you, uh, I just, you know, one day I, I too will get to drink coffee in space and perhaps Rod, uh, you will be there with me and we can celebrate together. All right. Well, I can't By the way, wait. My daughter was born at like four in the morning on, on, on the 29th, uh, which happens to be my mother's birthday and my aunt's birthday because they're twins. So three birthdays to celebrate as well as the space shuttle mission. So. Wow. More information than we ever needed. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. Hey, uh, I was born at 410 in the morning. So there you go. All right. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back and we're going to talk Skylab. Don't go anywhere. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Bitwarden, the only open-source cross-platform password manager you can trust. Security Now's Steve Gibson has even switched over. With Bitwarden, all the data in your vault is end-to-end -end encrypted, not just your passwords. Bitwarden protects you by creating unique usernames and adding strong, randomly generated passwords for each account or by using any of their six integrated email alias services. You can log into Bitwarden and decrypt your vault after using SSO on a registered, trusted device. No master password is needed. On top of being public to the world, Bitwarden also has professional third-party audits performed yearly 
and published on its website. You can view all of Bitwarden's code on GitHub as well. Every Bitwarden password manager user can now manage passkeys with their Bitwarden vault using the Bitwarden browser extensions. Passkeys are a secure, safe method to log into websites without a password utilizing WebAuth cryptographic protocols and a public-private key pair. They're impossible to guess, resistant to phishing, and immune to website data breaches. Join Bitwarden at the fourth annual Open Source Security Summit, where businesses, open source enthusiasts, developers, and security thought leaders come together to explore how open source software leads to stronger cybersecurity. Headliners this year include Brian Krebs from KrebsAndSecurity.com, White Hat hacker and CEO of Social Proof Security, Rachel Toback, and generative AI expert and advisor, Zach Cass. Join the leaders in open source security and register now for the Open Source Security Summit on December 7th at opensourcesecuritysummit.com. At Twit, we're fans of password managers. Get started with Bitwarden's free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. That's bitwarden.com slash twit. All right. In 1973, NASA launches Skylab into orbit. It was a very troubled launch. There was a lot of damage to the space station. This was the upper stage of a Saturn V. The S4B stage had been converted into a space station. And uh, it's always been a question in my mind if some corners might have been cut because this is the tapering end of the space age budget for NASA. But uh, they, a solar panel got ripped off on ascent. The other one got pinned by some uh, sheet metal on the rocket that came loose and got wrapped around it. And by the time they got into orbit, they only had the smaller solar panels on what was called the Apollo telescope mount, which did unfurl successfully, but it wasn't really enough to power the station properly. But we finally had a station up in orbit. Now, to put some context to this, the Soviet Union had launched a couple of Salyut stations before this, smaller, less capable, but still first space stations in orbit. So hats off to them. And they had had crew rotations in them. So they they had done that sort of you know, as a recovery from we didn't get to the moon, the United States did, but we can do space stations. So <laughs> they did space stations. So we finally sent up our great big one. Uh, still to, to this day, until Starship makes orbit with people, the largest single volume of pressurized space ever in orbit and had three crews rotate through it. Now, the first crew, which is led by Pete Conrad, who is quite a character, uh, had to do repairs. And this was very much kind of a, I won't call it a come-as-you-are party, but they were fashioned on on the quick because the station was up there. The crew that was going to visit it immediately had to stand down because they realized there was damage. And they had to very quickly research and plan ways to fix it, which involved such dynamic things as using a branch trimmer bought at retail to try and <laughs> reach out and cut some of the stuff that was binding that uh, that one solar panel that was still attached, the big one. So Pete Conrad and his crew go up and they fly the Apollo command module right up next to Skylab. And this is, you know, this is early days. That kind of rendezvous being a few feet away from this massive space station was dangerous stuff. But this was an earlier, let's just say more, more risk tolerant NASA, I guess. We're seeing in the video now somebody smoking cigars and mission control, which is it still smells like that. Um, <laughs> if you go to the old mission control. Anyway, they got up next to it, tried to fix it, couldn't. So finally they docked, went inside. It was hot. It smelled like burnt plastic. They immediately uh, cleaned the atmosphere, got inside, set up shop, set up a parasol in effect by going out the um, the uh, the hatch and setting up a sunshade to cover part of the a station where the sunshade had been also torn off during launch. So that helped, but they still needed to free that, that trap solar panel that was still attached. So they did a couple of EVAs. Um, the short version of the story is Pete Conrad being the go-getter, get-it-done, space cowboy kind of guy that he was. Depending on who whose record you believe, may have gone a little off script. Uh, they tried everything that they had planned and it just wasn't working, but they had gotten a line attached to this extra solar, this uh, trap solar panel. And so he and his uh, partner in the spacewalk, there's three of them, but only two of them are outside, got underneath the cable. So they put it between the top of their backpacks and their helmets 
And he said, okay, on the count of three, stand up really fast. So one, two, three, they stood up. The cable went twang. It freed the solar panel, which swung out and locked. And those two guys went flying off into space, attached by tethers. <laughs> but there were some some pretty red. Their heartbeats went up a bit, but not anything compared to the doctors down in Mitchell Control that are watching these things going, what are they doing up there? So this was really a, a cowboy mission, if ever there was one. And they, they managed to do what they needed to do. And Skylab was very successful with three crew isn't, rotations isn't, of increasing complexity. Isn't that the spacewalk where there was some salty language and a nice reminder from Mission Control that the eagle is listening, which is like the public <laughs> on the ground, right? Well, anytime Pete Conrad flew, there was salty language. He was a Navy guy after all. And he tended to get a little blue. Um, he actually, if you listen to the downlink from way back when, from both that and Apollo 12, he constrains himself admirably, but occasionally things just pop out of your mouth when events get extra busy or unusual, let's say. Um, <laughs> but all in all, it went really, really well, and it was an amazing piece of, of work in terms of doing stuff on the fly that just needed to get done. I don't think if that happened today, they would have handled it in the same way or a little more safety conscious, but... Well, you know, there was a lot of discretion left to the crew commander of those days, and he led like a leader. To your point, that would be my next one. If we're are we going to keep going, or do we? Please, sir. Yeah, go, go, go. I mean, so I, I, there was, I, I picked an astronaut because there was one that always comes to mind who I just think is the bee's knees when it comes to talking to astronauts in space. Bees um, and and it, it kind of touches on some some similar themes. And the reason I, I picked this astronaut was because they. I felt were instrumental in a lot of things. Number one is in preserving, um, you know, a, a gem of astro astronomical significance. Number two, uh, I think basically kickstarting uh, the 21st century fan club, uh, you know, for, yeah. for NASA. And, 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 and you'll, you'll know when I, when I, when I tell you who they are. So it's, it's Mike Massimino, who I'm sure you, you've met in the past and I've, had the, the the pleasure of, of meeting him several times uh, over the course of, of the missions that he flew. Uh, and uh, I, I actually have not met him and I'm still no. waiting for you to get him on the show. Oh, well, I'm going to try. He's got a new book coming out in January. So I, oh, I'm definitely going to be, be reaching out to him uh, for sure. But, uh, but I met him during STS-125, which was the final space shuttle uh, servicing mission back in 2009, I think is when that was. Uh, but he had actually flown to Hubble before. And, uh, and so he was a, uh, a Hubble, uh, repair guy, really, really experienced in, in servicing what is, you know, today, you know, 20 plus years on, uh, kind of a pillar of astronomical research and opening Absolutely. up, you know, what, what we've done. And, uh, and there was a, a moment in that final flight. At the very kind of start, I think it was even the first spacewalk or, or whatnot, where uh, he and his spacewalking uh, 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 partner were trying to open up this big shelf on on Hubble, basically to take the camera out and to put a new camera in, but the the, the thing was stuck, and um, and I, was it was it that thing or was it anyway? The, it was it was either that that event or it was it was. Um, uh, when they were working on another part, but they had this, this like bar, like a handrail kind of bar that was just jammed. They couldn't get it off. They couldn't remove it. And he said, what happens if I just pull it off <laughs> right? to, to, to wrench it off? And to your point about the, the that Scott, that Skylab spacewalk, he was out there, you know, floating outside of Hubble and they had a whole engineering team just go back and find out like how much, how hard do you got to pull it? Uh, how, um, how much force do you got to put so he doesn't go flying out into space or anything like that? But they also don't damage the ten, a hundred billion dollar uh, space telescope either. And uh, and he did it. He said that he he just channeled his inner Uncle Frank and uh, and Uncle pulled that Frank. sucker off. And he they did not let him keep the handrail, but he is uh, to this day uh, on uh, you know he 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 represents the Intrepid Space. Uh, and see uh, Air and Space Museum in New York City. They had the the ripped off handrail on display there um, uh, when I was there last, uh, and that was really great to see. And and so it was a, a bit of an inspiration story about how he became an astronaut from an engineer. Uh, he is from New York City. Um, he left in 2014 to go back to Columbia University, but not before becoming the first person ever to send a tweet from space and say what you will about Twitter right now. But 
We call uh, it in, X, but say what you <laughs> will. But, but back then, uh, it was two years old, you know, and it was brand new. And NASA was trying to find new ways to reach uh, a modern audience, a, a younger audience, people that were trying to find new ways to get involved. And what Mike Massimino did was offer and pioneer a direct access to space for a mm-hmm. new generation of people, people who maybe didn't know that they were interested in space until they realized that they could get live real time updates from astronauts in space right now. And back then it was still like a real clunky process because he would send the messages or the photos back to earth. And then um, someone in mission control would post them on Twitter. Now the astronauts, it's a a much more smoother process. They can do whatever they want. They can do video. They can do whatever. Um, One of the astronauts on the station right now just captured the, uh, photos of her parents' hometown, and she was really excited about it. And that was a touching story for me to see. And that all goes back to this place. Plus, he's he's been on TV. He was on Big Bang Theory as an astronaut trainer to one of the one of the characters on that. Uh, and so, uh, playing himself, of course. <laughs> so, um, so I just, I just, I, I'm really thankful that there are astronauts like that. Terry Virts, we, we we talked about in the past, uh, was on Star Trek. So it was Mike Fink. Uh, you know, uh, Mae Jemison was on Star Trek too. All right. of those of those folks are, are, you know, are, are, are actually all the astronauts in general, we should be thankful for, but he, he comes to mind for that visible symbol of bringing it all down to earth in a way that we can understand. And if you haven't ever heard him describe what happens when you sneeze in a spacesuit, please <laughs> look it up because I wrote that story and it is hilarious. And his number one advice about sneezing in a spacesuit, Mike Massimino is to not sneeze in a spacesuit. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and he's got that podcast, Two Funny Astronauts, I think is what it's called. That's right, with uh, with Garrett uh, Reeson. Is that right? Yeah, which yeah. is great. It's it's great fun. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I listened to it a few times. I thought, these guys are awesome. These are the kind of astronauts you want to hang out with, right? Garrett Reisman, uh working on For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus, too. Yeah, yeah. good plug there. All right, <laughs> let's do one more before our next and final break. And I want to talk about the Cassini mission and the Huygens probe. Oh, yeah. So uh, these are kind of bookends. Uh, Cassini arrived in Saturnian space in 2004, and the mission ended in 2017. But in 2005, the Huygens probe, which is a a little capsule attached to the very large Cassini spacecraft, it's always uh, characterized as being the size of a school bus and all that kind of thing. And this was a big, multi-billion dollar flagship mission. It orbited Saturn for 13 years and did incredible work. I mean, the imagery is just jaw-dropping. You've all seen it. But uh, Huygens detached 2005, plummeted down to the surface of Titan. And we knew a little bit about Titan before that, but this really just changed everything. I mean, this is imaging all the way down the surface. It was small. It was battery-powered, so it didn't last a long time. Cameras are kind of limited resolution. But for something like that, that tiny, tiny you wouldn't even call it a lander, I guess you call it a hard lander, yeah. to make it down the surface of Titan and send anything all the way back to the deep space network at uh, on Earth, JPL's uh, under JPL's control, was just riveting. And I thought, wow, we're looking at images from the moon of Saturn, yes, the right. one moon in the solar system <laughs> with an atmosphere, smoggy and nasty as it is, and the stuff that they intuited from it and the discoveries that were made you know, from a very simple equipment package were just astonishing. Yeah. And uh, finally realized, you know, Titan's actually a place that people in theory could live. It's fairly temperate compared to most things out that far in the solar system. And although you can't breathe the atmosphere, at least it's thick enough that you won't explode if you walk out without a spacesuit. So you basically <laughs> can go out in cold weather gear in an oxygen bottle. Uh, so that was the first part of that mission that was arresting. And then finally, uh, the I, I point out the too that that was a yeah. little bit of a holiday thing too because they released Huygens around Christmas, uh, just prior to the landing, which was in January of 2005, and and then it arrived like a few weeks later. So it was mm. a, kind of like a double a double whammy where they had the all right, we're on the way, and then we're, we're here. So that was exciting. That was a long night for space.com in. So watching that. Okay. Okay. Enough whining. Uh, I was not. I was excited. It was great. Long night. And then I was up at JPL for the end of the Cassini mission. So they've got this enormous orbiter that's powered by, again, plutonium uh, pellets to release heat and generate electricity. 
didn't want it to go into one of the ocean moons uh, because it could cause a certain amount of regional devastation if it did. And there might be life there. We don't want to poison things we haven't even found yet. So the decision was to fly Cassini into Saturn's atmosphere where it can't do any harm. And so in 2017, a bunch of us assembled up at JPL. When I say a bunch of us, I mean all the people that poured their hearts <laughs> in this mission for decades and a few lucky souls like me that got to sit there and watch. So we're down the floor of the uh, the uh, control room there, and the balcony was up behind us, and that's where the the primary mission people assembled. And it was pretty somber because there wasn't video imagery coming back. There was just this signal, this sort of pilot signal coming from Cassini that looked like uh, the kind of trace you'd see on a monitor in a hospital room. It was sort mm-hmm. of ironic. So it was this this straight line with a spike in the middle that showed where the signal was. And as Cassini flew into the Saturn's atmosphere, and of course, we're watching simulations created by JPL, not not any real video. You're watching the signal, and as the minutes go by, the spike in this plot just gets lower and lower and lower oh, no. until it flatlines. And you knew that the thing had torn itself apart, and that was the end of the mission. And boy, was that a tearjerker of a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. enough for me just as a bystander, but when you're <laughs> looking up at the people that had monitored this thing, Linda Spilker, prominent among them, uh, up on the balcony there, you know, there are a lot of hugs and backslaps, some tears, uh, no, no great demonstrations of emotion, but I know they were feeling it because this is a, a lifetime accomplishment for those yeah. people, you know, yeah. just an amazing, amazing mission. And to watch it end, at least it was ended on their terms and by choice. Yeah. So that, that and not by a budget cancellation, incredible. right? So, oh yeah. So <laughs> my friend, my friend Jan Berkeley worked on that mission uh, as, as an engineer, mm-hmm. and uh, I met her through you know at USC. We're in band together, and and it was it was one it of those missions together. where, and she was on Galileo before that too, I think, and um, uh, which had a similar fate, you know. But you were right. I mean, that was a a seminal moment, and the the stuff from Hoisins to this day is informing the next big mission to get out there mm. with Dragonfly, right? Where they're right, gonna right. fly on that moon. Um, and we were just talking about Saturn's rings recently where they use images of Cassini from like the, uh, like all of those spectacular mm-hmm. images that they, they had sent down the blue ones, you know, the, the, they looked back at earth from Saturn between Saturn's rings, uh, uh, to recreate that, that pale blue dot, uh, esque thing. I mean, lots of really great stuff that came out of that mission. Um, Remember the time we all waved at Cassini uh, near the end? <laughs> and they, they took a picture of everyone <laughs> when they're waving up, uh, and, and then yeah. they beamed it to the to the spacecraft. September fifteenth, twenty seventeen. That was that day that uh, that it fell to the gas giant. So, well, R.I.P. Cassini. And you've offered us proof positive that people that spend time in marching band can actually rise to great heights, unlike oh, you, yourself M- and myself. Um, okay, so we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to be back with listener comments. Stand by. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Our producer is laughing himself sick because I'm a cruel man. Uh, let's, let's take some listener comments. So we, we got a, f- a few comments on Discord uh, from Club Twit listeners and some from the uh, the general audience. And uh, please pardon me if I mispronounce your, your last name because some of them are, are not immediately familiar to me. But John Antipas, or Antipas who has written me a number of times, said, uh, I think what he was saying, uh, I had to digest this from a longer email, was that he was grateful that we, Tarek, you and uh-huh. me, in, in reverse order, spin your <laughs> dreams for a new generation with our podcast. Thank you. And he's also grateful for his cardboard Apollo Command Module mock-up back in the day. And I wonder if I'm on, the only person that still does that. Oh, but God, I admitted it on the air. Oh, no. I'm going to go sit in a closet and play Apollo. No, I don't think, John, he's not, because I actually built one for my daughter when she was a kid. So that she yeah? Yeah, yeah. With the, oh, you're a good the, dad. The I was going to build... And everything, so. I wanted to build a one-to-one uh, plywood mock-up of the lunar module for my son when he was little until he told me in no uncertain terms, Dad, that's that's lame. Oh, so I built him a treehouse instead. It Can you imagine, not. though, being the only guy in my neighborhood with a lunar module in my backyard? I mean, it, as it was, I was the only guy that was dumb enough to buy a fire truck for my kid. <laughs> Real one. I mean, I drove it, but he enjoyed it. Uh, all right. 
Uh, George Rancor says, uh, this is kind of kind of sweet, on a trip to Orlando with his sister and her three kids to do the usual attractions, he told the kids that there's going to be a shuttle night launch coming up, and it would be mm-hmm. so bright they could read a newspaper by it, to which his his niece's nephews probably said, what's a newspaper, <laughs> uncle? And uh, so they, they went down to Titusville, one of my favorite non-towns, and uh, saw the launch, and sure enough, he held up a newspaper and they could see it. <laughs> So that was a that that's a great physical demonstration of how to teach lessons in space flight. I think. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. My my daughter won't come to rocket launches in Virginia with me anymore because it's a five hour drive. But we did see one uh, in in Florida from the the freeway, uh, and it was spectacular. It was one of those night those like twilight ones where it mm-hmm. like lights up the sky. So always look up if there's a rocket launch near you because you never know what you're going to see. That's a, that's, that's a good lesson from George right there. I took my kid to a shuttle launch and he was about 10 and we waited 10 days for that damn thing to go and it didn't. There mm. were hydrogen leaks and all the usual stuff so I finally took him up to a beach on Titusville also to see an Atlas launch. It was either Cross or Laddie. I forget which one. And I thought, oh, it's just an Atlas. Oh well, it's the best I can do. It was a cloudy day. There was a layer of overcast. And as you know, when you have clouds, it tends to constrain the subsonics from the rocket taking off. And it was thrilling to me, terrifying to him. He started <laughs> to shake. And I said, it's okay, man. It's supposed to do that. But it was uh, it was impressive. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Artemis from Stuart That's Sussman. Right. We have the Artemis mission is high on my A-list. Any updated information on individual parts of the program, such as the gateway, landing sites, new concepts, and landers and rovers would be great. Well, rovers are a distant glint in the eye, I'm afraid, for Artemis. But you may have some news on the others. I think Artemis 5 might have a rover. I think might, I think yeah. that's the one that might have one. But no, you know, it's interesting that, that Stuart, you, you send this in because as, as of today, we got some new renderings of what Gateway will look like with its solar arrays. Um, and big shout out to my sister because I think her company is working with Northrop Grumman on on some Gateway stuff. So, And I know she listens to us. So, um, Uh-oh. <laughs> but, but, you know... As we speak, we have just crossed the one-year mark for the launch of Artemis 1. And I know that you have your thoughts about SLS in, entirely, but think what about... What do you mean? <laughs> think, I am harmed. Think, think, about, think about that mission, man. A year ago, NASA did something that they hadn't done for uh, nearly uh, a generation, if not more, you know, for just to launch uh, a mission around the moon. And... Through a little bit of wrangling from the press corps, because they weren't doing it initially, we had continuous live video all, almost all the way there and uh, and then on the way back. And initially, they they turned it off uh, for a couple of days, but finally they just left it on because they get the raw signal. They already have it. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, things seem to be chugging along. Will Artemis 2 launch in 2024 or not? That is a really good question. Uh, Stuart, I want to say yes. I really, really do. Right now, it's looking really tight to get there to the end of the year. Um, but as you asked about landers and stuff, they need to get them off the ground. NASA has since that first flight um, opened up uh, a competition for a second moon lander. Blue Origin is really hoping to get that as well mm. so that they have uh, two different companies providing that. Still very hard to do. SpaceX still hasn't gotten to orbit with the uh, with starship and nasa wants to land people in 2025 2026 maybe uh, yeah so they've got they've got some row to hoe there to get uh to get the uh, to close in on that but you are right artemis one was amazing the technology on it was really really cool i wish that we could all buy the snoopy that the peanuts gang made uh that they flew on that flight but uh, uh sadly we'll have to wait uh, and and see if that ever comes to light so you know, it's, it's one of the missions. I didn't put it on my list because it was on Stuart's list. And, uh, and we, I knew we get to talk about it again. You are such a nerd consumer. And I, and I <laughs> want to compliment you for getting that metaphor right about row to hoe because most people say road to hoe and it's, not. it's, it's row because it's agricultural. That's right. right. From, from John from Slanina, town. from Twit's very own John Slanina, who we, uh, we, we love to hear from because he knows all about the stuff. He very generously said he wants to thank the science and math teachers that, among other things, squeaked him through differential equations and who also made space exploration possible and inspire future generations. 
And yes, because when I think of what I put my science and math teachers through, um, yeah, <laughs> big kudos. Yeah. yeah, a huge, a huge uh, salutations and 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 yes, congrats, John, to all of those math teachers. You know, I actually was meeting some future space, uh, science writers and was very impressed because they're all scientists and they all pass differential equations. And I took that twice. The second time with my little sister, and I still didn't make it through. But I have a, there's another thing about math that came out of this. My, my colleague, Monisha Rivasetti, our astronomy editor at, um, at space.com sent me a story that was, that, that she really enjoys. And this was about how mathematicians and scientists way back in, um, in like the 1900s and whatnot, where they were thinking about the, the math from black holes, which were really theoretical. They couldn't get it to work that the math foundations that they developed for that led to a lot of the, the calculations that back up Wi-Fi right now, which you and I are using right now to like beam signals out to everybody right. all around. And it came from this foundational math, just like these, these, these theories that they were trying to figure out uh, in the early 1900s and whatnot. And, uh, and of course it led to GPS satellites and all of the fun stuff too uh, that came after that. So I just wanted to give a shout out uh, to her thankful point bit of the space age um, because it's an unexpected side effect, which are always the best kinds. So when they're so, good, when they're good, <laughs> we're getting a bit close on time here. I've got a few more to get through. So yes, let me yes, read sorry, a couple sorry. of them. And then I want you to, to wrap up with your, your last and final and greatest uh, space gratefulness. Uh, John Cross, who was a, one of the premier writers for Ad Astra, my magazine says he's grateful for the wall to wall coverage of Apollo eight, 11 and the other missions. Uh, by the major networks. There were three of them at the time. <laughs> Different world. Uh, he attended the launch of Skylab, oh, and nice. uh, he also uh, tips his hat to Pioneers 10 and 11, which is in the early 70s, made it through the asteroid belt when success was not necessarily expected, and it turned out there's a lot more room there than we thought, but didn't know, and they were headed out to the outer solar system. Uh, so that was a big one. Uh, Norm Fazekas, and this was a bit of a surprise to me because he's he's younger than me, but not a teenager. But he said, Crew, Crew Dragon Demo 2, big mm -hmm. milestone for him and his two elementary school daughters. They watch it together at home, which is a way to do these things. Also, it was says, during COVID, too. So Yeah, he did mention yeah. that. He says, to think my children will not only never know a period that Americans aren't being put into space by America's spacecraft, but will also likely get to see the human exploration of the galaxy that's been holed for the last 50 years. Galaxy might be a bit much, Norm. We're wishing for that, but Solar you know, system. If, if heck, if we can just see a landing on the moon and maybe Mars for them, that would be pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, Dennis Howell says he was in high school in the 1960s, grateful to have seen the era of the space race. And he says it makes him proud to think about what Americans can do when we get together and decide to do something great. Got to agree with that. Dennis, uh, John Ferber says he's thankful for the DART mission. Yeah. One day save our planet and got to agree with that, man. Um, mm -hmm. that was, was one that, that was on my list too, you know? So <laughs> yeah, that was really just unbelievable. Uh, and finally, uh, Eric Weingart says, Wengert says thankful for the, and this is maybe where you want to pivot Tark. Yeah. Thankful for the great discoveries by the James Webb space telescope. And oh gosh, I'm blushing. Thankful <laughs> for this week in space for discussing interesting topics with esteemed guests. He didn't say esteemed hosts, <laughs> esteemed guests. It'd be a great place to point budding space enthusiasts. Thank you to you, Tarek, and that I th I think he means me and you, but <laughs> and, and the team that makes Twist possible. Keep up the great work. <laughs> That's right. And I say amen, brother. Pretty sure he meant thank you to you, Tarek, I think is what he meant. So, but that's okay. Of course, Rod, that's what you think. Rod, Rod, you do a great job too. You do. So I'm feeling small, but yeah. So that, I, that was very sweet. And I, yeah. I put that one last because it was a nice personal message. And, and we do get a fair amount of email and it's been positive so far. So thanks to all of you for listening. It's a real treat and a privilege to do this. And thanks to Ant and Anthony and the whole team that works behind us because they make us look much better than we went on our own, yeah. Uh, which you know we can always use the help. Oops. And um, yeah, so uh, why don't you give us your your big wrap up hit here? Well, no, I would just say um, that I was going to echo 
a bit of what Eric had said there because, well, James Webb was, was on my list, but again, we've got folks that were talking about that. And the, the big thanks I think that I want to just give out to everyone. And I think you do too, Rod is not just to the listeners of our podcast and the people that make it work because without them, we wouldn't be here, but it's everyone that has an interest in space because mm-hmm. we are, I think as Eric and as John and as Dennis and, uh, and as Norm really pointed out living in this new paradigm of space exploration where uh, space is closer than ever than it's uh, to, to the public than it's ever been before. They can through a click of a button through a phone in their hand, see live views of space, what's happening on Mars uh, and what the plans are to get us to the red planet and beyond. Uh, but without the interest of listeners of the public, uh, none of that happens because mm. they have to show that that pursuit for knowledge and exploration for exploration and knowledge's sake is an important uh, and valid use of our time and our, our, our budget and all of that to advance all of us forward into what is this 21st century. So without them and you all out there, none of that happens. And unless you tell everyone around you that it's important for all of us to get this stuff right, uh, no one's going to invest in it. And so, you know, thank you all for that, for just keeping that industry going forward. And Congress does listen to the mood of the public, so the more of our mood you can give them, the better off we'll all be. And, you know, it occurs to me that we might even call this a second space age or or a space 2.0. Oh, wait, I wrote a book <laughs> of that title that's still available on Amazon. As okay, a book sorry. like that, right? <laughs> Just had to put that on. Uh, so, uh, yes, thank, thank you to everybody. You've made this a real special experience for us the last couple of years and hopefully many more. And I want to thank you all for joining us for our pre-Thanksgiving special, our first one, what we're grateful for in space exploration. Tarek, where are you hiding your Thanksgiving goodies these days? Well, I'm pretty sure I ordered all of mine from Fresh Direct, but <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, I will I will be celebrating Thanksgiving uh, with my family, and of course, uh, any new stuff that's coming down Starship or more, you can find me on at space.com uh, through that weekend. It's Black Friday, looking for good deals in space, and uh, and of course uh, on the Twitter uh, where I'm trying to get everything out as soon as we find out about it, um, and I'll play a lot of video games, like you know at Spacetron Place. So, And there it is on the video feed. Okay. There's a new rocket in Fortnite this week. I'm excited. Woo! So. <laughs> and of course, getting back to real life, you can always find me at pilebooks.com and at adastermagazine.com, the magazine I edit. I don't have any product placement to do, so that's that for, for that. Don't forget to drop us a line at twist at twit.tv. That's T-W-I-S at twit.tv. We always welcome, and I would say, dare say, cherish, your comments, suggestions, and ideas. We love getting them every week. Don't forget to check out space.com, website to the name, and the National Space Society at nss.org. We will have a refreshed new website coming up next week. Yay! I'm doing a quiet rollout. Yes, it was overdue. No more pushpins and burlap for us. Uh, <laughs> both are good places to satisfy your spaceflight cravings. And to everyone, a happy, snappy, backslappy Thanksgiving to one and all. Enjoy family and friends because life is short. And for those of you who aren't in the United States, just take a day for yourself and think about space like we do every day. New episodes of this podcast published every Friday on your favorite podcatcher. So make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, and give us reviews. We'll take whatever you got. And you can also head to our website at twit.tv slash twists. Don't forget, you can get all the great programming on the Twit Network ad-free on Club Twit, as well as some extras that are only available there. It's a secret. For just $7 per month, you've heard Leo on his other shows talk about the tough times facing podcasters. It's all true. This is your chance to step up and be counted for a measly $7 a month. That's one and a half Frappuccinos, so it's got to be worth it. Finally, you can follow the Twit Tech Podcast Network at Twit on Twitter slash X and on Facebook at Twit.tv. On Instagram, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Tarek. Thanks, Ant. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, team at Twit. For everything and have a good Thanksgiving. We'll see you in a week. Turkey, turkey, turkey. <laughs> it's midweek and you really want to know even more about the world of technology. So you should check out Tech News Weekly, the show where we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. It's the biggest news. We talk with the uh, people writing the stories that you're probably reading. We also talk between ourselves about the stories that are getting us even more excited about tech news this week. 
So if you're excited, well, then join us. Head to twit.tv slash TNW to subscribe.